0: Good morning. Um, If you want to find your place in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at the very end of the chapter today. Um, Do any of you, some of you are going to be too young, um, but do any of you remember from like the 90s a cartoon called The Animaniacs? My, My kids have discovered it and... And so it's become a big hit in our family. But um, there was a bit on that, if you remember that show, there was a bit called Good Idea, Bad Idea. Remember those? And so it had a character who would act out what the narrator was saying, and the narrator would say something like, Good idea, doing your own yard work. Bad idea, doing your own dental work. Like that kind of a thing, right? Another one that I thought was funny was, Good idea, playing the accordion at a polka festival. Bad idea, playing the accordion anywhere else. <laughs> so, um, I, I love history, and I think one of the reasons I love history is because it's kind of like a real-life good idea, bad idea, right? You, we can look back at history, we can say, that was a great idea, we should keep doing that, or we can look back and say, that was a terrible idea, let's never do that again, right? So, um I, um, as as I look back, I could think of, like, good idea. We've learned it's a good idea to wear bright clothing when you're out running at night, right? Bad idea, wearing (laughs) bell-bottoms. Ever, anytime, right? So, one of my favorite parts of history, as we look back and we we try to learn from the past, one of my favorite parts of history is uh, the Civil War. We can learn a lot about... Spiritual warfare by understanding our history like history 's physical warfare, and during the Civil War, how many people are history fans in here? How many people can 't stand history if you if you hate it i 'm sorry i 'm just going to make this brief though in the Civil War, if you know anything about the civil war, um, they had this bright idea that it would be a good idea for everybody to Stand shoulder to shoulder across the battlefield and just march at people who are firing on them, right? And so, um, but the enemy, you you know, the idea between marching that way is that your numbers and your tight formation might make you be able to withstand the attack before you can get to your enemy and then and then overcome them. Hopefully, the enemy, what is their goal as they're firing on the lines? And there might there's you know, three or four rows of people walking that way. The enemy's firing on the lines, and they're always concentrating their fire, their cannon fire, or their rifle, you know, with rifles. They're concentrating their fire in the middle. The goal was to break the line in the middle, because if you can break the line in the middle, then you divide the army, right? And you, if you divide them there, you separate them from this support that they have over here, you separate communication, you separate them from any kind, of, any, any kind of unity, and they become weakened and vulnerable. And as we go through life trying to be obedient to Christ and his call, we go under spiritual warfare every day, and it's the same tactic that Satan uses against us. He is trying to divide us. He's trying to divide us from each other so that we can't, we don't have the support of, of this side. We can't encourage each other. We can't communicate and speak truth into each other's lives. We can't um, hold people accountable and we can't sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. So he's trying to divide us, but he's also trying to separate us from christ and if you can if you think of an army if if a the general who's leading the army falls in battle and no one takes that spot all chaos breaks out because no one is leading and so that's why scripture tells us strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter right so as we are going under spiritual warfare day in and day out, Satan is trying to pull us away from Christ, who is our head. And Jesus tells us in Mark 3.25 that if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. He doesn't say that house might not stand. He says it cannot stand if it's divided. So, Paul, as he's writing to the Philippian church here, understands the the reality of suffering we're going to talk he, he talks about suffering a lot in this letter. We've talked about it a lot every time I've been here preaching through Philippians. Uh, he talks about it again in the text today. Um, he talks to them a lot about their need for um, you know the most important thing that he that he's Reason for writing this letter, the most important thing that our lives should be invested in is exalting Christ through advancing the gospel. And he, today, as we look through the text today, he is going to um, try to drive home the need for the church to be united in those things. So if you have Philippians 1, we're going to start in verse 27. And if you are capable of standing, could you please stand to honor God as we? read his word. Starting in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to, this is a sign to them that you, they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Let's pray. God, we... Um, we come before you, and we are looking at this part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church and I just pray for um, I pray for your Holy Spirit to speak through me as there's a lot in this text and um and you know you know the the struggle I had to boil it down to what I have because there's so much there. And I just pray, God, that you would help us to be able to glean wisdom and insight from your word of truth and that it would be an encouragement and that your Holy Spirit would compel us, God, to, um, to exalt you in life or in death, to exalt you in good times and in times when we may be suffering or going through trials or, or battling spiritual warfare, and that we would, as a church, unite and support each other and carry each other's burdens and help each other through those, those hard times so that um, we're growing together, we're growing in our faith, and you are exalted in the life of the church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, so when Steve said he's going to try to wrap up the sermon in one sentence, I was thinking, Steve, I'm having trouble wrapping it up in one sermon. So um, so if it comes out in a way that you can wrap it up in one sentence, I'm going to contribute that to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, um, All right, so... Paul tells them, so he's coming out of our text from last week where he was saying, you know, whether I live or I die, I don't know what's going to happen. But whether I live or die, Christ is going to be exalted in my life or my death. And then he says to them, pick, picking up in 27, he says, whatever happens, whatever takes place with that, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, he tells them, imitate Christ. The, the Greek literally means live as a citizen of the gospel. Live it out in every way. So as he's writing this church in Philippi, a, culture, a Philippian culture that um, we talked about at one time, a Philippian culture that was very proud of the Roman citizenship, and they imitated, they, they, they made their city a copy after the capital city. So it's a people who are imitating Rome, and Paul says, don't be, don't be proud because you're a Roman citizen. Be proud because you're a citizen of heaven, don't imitate Rome. Imitate Christ. And so he, so he tells them, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Imitate Christ with your whole life. And then he encourages them with this uh, sentence when he says, Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And I have tried to drive home this point as we've worked through chapter 1, that the point of Paul's writing is to advance the gospel. So in Paul's life, I mean, that's what Jesus commanded the church as he gave the Great Commission to the, his disciples, and then they went out and they, established, they started the church and started planting churches. What the commission was go out, make disciples, teaching them everything that I've taught you, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. The the commission is that we are to go out and we are to spread this message of good news, that Christ came and died for our sins in our stead, that he was raised to life on the third day, and that those who, who give their life to him, there will be an eternal reward in heaven. So, The most important thing in paul's life is this mission that christ has given him the advancement of the gospel but he tells the church you have to have unity and why would the church need unity because just like an army that's been divided you cannot be as effective in in advancing the gospel if you are divided as you can be if you are united so the most important thing is the advancement of the gospel the church needs unity to advance the gospel and so as we are looking at his instructions and we think about the church today do you, can you think of anything in the church today that divides us is the church divided among denominational lines sure it is now we we have you know essentials of the faith that can't be compromised, and there are churches and other denominations that hold to those essentials that don't compromise those, but we still have differences. We have, for some of those areas where the Bible gives us some wiggle room to disagree, people tend to flock to those who think like they do, right, on some of those secondary issues. And so we have denominations that we should be able to work together to advance the gospel, but some denominations just they, we can't get past those differences, and we can't, for some reason, can't work together. Is the church divided uh, between, like, among generational lines? Some of them are, yeah. Some of them have people who are like, I, I just cannot worship this way. Those, those people are older. These people are younger. They can't seem to work together. Is the church divided between? races yeah we have all white churches all black churches all latino churches all chinese churches whatever it might be and again we should be able to work together but people flock to those things that are normal for them or comfortable for them and sometimes we can't get past those differences to work together to advance the gospel Is the church divided among philosophical thought? Yeah, I have a number of friends that have a different philosophy than I do. And um, I would hope that we could work together, but sometimes people can't. So with all of that, and Paul's telling us we have to be unified with all of these differences that are pressing in on us, and, and Satan is using all of those to try to divide us, how... How do we unify ourselves? What brings unity? The gospel is what brings unity. We have one head, no matter if it's a church in this denomination, in this denomination, or a church in this culture, in this culture. We have one head in the church globally, right? That's Christ, and his mission to us is to advance the gospel. So that is what unifies us. We can have all kinds of differences that might separate us, but one thing unifies us, and that's the gospel. Now, there are a lot of things that press in on the church today that try to divide us, and it's really easy to lose sight of Christ and be divided if we don't keep our eyes on what we're called to do and be. Some say we're called to, to just love people, and that's, their, that's the, like, the driving force behind what they do on Sunday mornings and during the week. Some say we're called to live an authentic life, and so church looks a little different for them than it does for others. Some say we're called to give up our worldly possessions and follow Christ. Some say we're called to be organic in our worship, you know, getting back to all so that everything is natural, According to Paul, though, our calling, all of those things are secondary. Our calling is to glorify Christ as we advance the gospel. And in order to do this, God has given us a grace gift to believe in his son Jesus and to suffer for him. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. So before we look at those two things, God's grace as a gift to believe on him and God's grace as a gift to suffer for him, I just want to explain why I call these grace gifts. The Greek word that Paul uses that we translate granted it has been granted to unto you on behalf of Christ. That word is the Greek word for grace. Paul uses the same word um, in Philippians 2, 9, when he's describing what God did when he gave Jesus the name that's above every name. So it's a granting or a bestowing of something on someone, but it's It is, in its very essence, from God's grace, and that's why I call it a grace gift, and so let's look at these things, because this is twofold. Paul says, it has been granted to you, this grace gift has been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. So, as we look at this first one, God's grace is a gift to believe in Christ, Scripture is full of evidence that our belief in Christ is a gift of God. We know that God wants everyone to come to repentance and be saved, and God has provided a way for us to do that through Jesus. Uh, for John 14, 6, uh, famous passage a lot of people know, Jesus is speaking, he says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, God has provided a way through Jesus. Second Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so, God wants all people to be saved, and God has provided a way for people to be saved through Jesus. But we can also see that God has designed that salvation to be based on a belief in His Son, Jesus. So, He's provided a way through Jesus, but it requires our faith in Him. Uh, Everybody knows John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he's provided this through Jesus But the requirement is that we have to come to faith in Him. We have to believe in Him. And we can also see that God's grace has been given, not only through Christ's sacrifice, but also for us to believe in Him. Not only did, did His grace bring Christ to earth as a man, walked a perfect life, died on the cross in our stead, was raised from the dead on the third day. But God's grace also is a gift of faith so that we can believe in His Son Jesus, believe in that sacrifice that He made for us, and and have salvation through that. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace at the cross, grace as a gift... For you to have faith in him and in his work on your behalf, and um, and uh, your faith then changes the way you live your life. What well, uh, anybody anybody here read anything from Wayne Grudem? You guys know who that name is, that name. Wayne Grudem is a brilliant theologian. He's got if if you like to read books on theology, he's got a book called Systematic Theology, which is fantastic. Um, Wayne Grudem said this uh, about the fact that our faith is um, a a gift of God through his grace. In the New Testament, and especially in Paul, not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the entire living of the Christian life can be seen to result from God's continuous bestowal of grace. You read that again for you. In the New Testament and especially in Paul, not only the forgiveness of sins, so not only what took place on the cross, but also the entire living of the Christian life. So your your life that you live in response to him and what he's done for you can be seen to result from God's continuous bestowal of grace. So all of life, even our faith in Christ as Savior, comes from God's grace gift. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says that it's been granted to you to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for him, which Paul has been driving home this point, that he's been suffering. The Philippians um, are suffering. They're going to suffer further trials, persecution, it might be. Um, All believers at some point suffer, and so he says, but it's also a grace gift to you to suffer for him, and so scripture is full of evidence that God reveals himself in special ways to those who suffer, and I mentioned that to you when I was here in September, and I mentioned a handful of examples that we see from Scripture, but here's a couple of them just to uh, support this, that God gives, him, gives those who suffer for him special revelation of himself. Uh, Acts 7 tells of the special vision that Stephen received when he was being stoned. So he's being stoned by the Jewish leaders. He looks up to heaven, and God opens up for Stephen to be able to see God sitting on his throne and Jesus standing at his right hand. In the first century Jewish mind, an understanding of an advocate was somebody who, when the judge was on his throne, the advocate stood at his right hand and was basically being an advocate for the person who's on trial, saying, this one, I can vouch for this one, this one belongs to me, whatever it might be. And so Stephen is looking up while he's being stoned after he just gave like, a really powerful sermon in defense of Christ as Messiah. And he looks up and he sees his advocate, Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. Um, Another example is Job. Job, after all of the suffering that Job went through, after listening to all of the terrible counsel his friends gave him, God finally speaks, and Job and God converse. And after all of that suffering, in Job chapter 42, verse 5, Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. So Job has a new understanding. God has revealed himself greater to Job after the suffering that he went through. So there are times that our suffering and our trials that we undergo are consequences of sin. That's true. But there are also times when that suffering, those trials, those are instruments that God uses to grow us more into his image. So he's calling us to imitate Christ and our suffering helps us to do that and i I've told you before, I don't like suffering, I don't maybe this is a fault of mine, but I don't wake up in the morning and say, "God, let me suffer today for you." you know um, it, it's hard to It's hard to imagine my loved one's suffering, and so it's just not something that is natural for me to pray, but it is something god uses to grow us and so it's not something that i should be afraid of christ himself suffered on my behalf and not only just so that i could be forgiven of my sins but hebrews tells us quite a bit about what what took place when christ suffered um christ himself learned obedience through suffering hebrews 5 8 son though he was he learned obedience from what he suffered son though he was he learned obedience from what he suffered and he was made perfect through his suffering hebrews 2:10. in bringing many sons and daughters to glory it was fitting that god for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered now that's not saying jesus had sin or anything like that jesus lived a perfect life so he was perfect but what he's talking about is his mission wasn't completed until after he had gone through the suffering that was necessary to complete it. So Jesus himself learned obedience through suffering and was made perfect through suffering, according to Hebrews. So suffering is not something to fear, which that's hard, but it's not something to fear, but rather something that when God ordains that we go through it, we can and should be able to rejoice in the great refining work that he's doing in our life. And that's why Paul, in, later on in the letter, in chapter 3, says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So God has given us grace to believe in him, but it goes hand in hand with suffering for him. You can't can't separate the two. Some people suffer more than others, but belief in him goes hand in hand. There will be some suffering that we go through. And Paul says that is actually God's grace being poured out on your life. So, how do we do this? How do we understand God's grace gift of believing in Him and suffering for Him in the midst of our current situation with the church today? How do we seek to believe in Christ and suffer for Him as we advance the gospel And as we try to do this, how do we keep unity within the body of Christ under such spiritual attack that we receive from the evil one? Um, Well, we first have to take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them upon Jesus, who, according to Hebrews 12, is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We take our eyes off of ourselves and we consider the body of Christ. Uh, we talked in Sunday school about Philippians chapter 2, which is the next, the next uh, text after what we're talking about today. And Paul says, <clears throat> consider others better than yourself. Um, consider the needs of others Um, above your own. And so we have to take our eyes off of ourselves. So individually, I have to take my eyes off of myself and I have to consider the body of Christ, right? As a body of Christ, we have to take our eyes off of ourselves and consider the body of Christ outside of our four walls. We have to consider the body of Christ down the street or the body of Christ in the next town over or the next country because the body of Christ is one, one church globally, and so it's bigger than just me, and it's bigger than just one local body of Christ in a town. It is worldwide. We consider Christians who belong to other denominations, assuming that they're denominations that hold to the essentials, and we work with them for the advancement of the gospel, we unify with the whole body of Christ to form a massive army under God's leadership rather than trying to take on the spiritual forces of the world alone. Because I could be the most, I could have the, the closest walk with Christ that someone could ever have, and yet I am one man, and I cannot take on the the forces of evil that are attacking the church today by myself. This body of Christ could be the most godly body of Christ in the area. And you can't take on the forces of evil by yourself. But if you link arms with the body of Christ around the world, that's an army pushing forward with the advancement of the gospel reaching lost souls a force to be reckoned with so it's 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 uniting with the church around the world taking the gospel out reaching those who are in desperate need of knowing it it's getting outside of ourselves and outside of our church walls and working with christians to reach a world in need Paul says God gave you grace to believe in him. He gave you grace to suffer for him. Don't try to do it alone. The body of Christ is there to support you. And God's call to the the great commission, the call to take the gospel out if we are united we will be more effective than if we are divided. And so Paul says, stand firm as one man contending for the faith of the gospel as you believe and suffer and grow closer and more in the image of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, thank you for the call to be a part of this mission of yours. Um, Christ did the necessary work on the cross, and you could have designed salvation to come in any way you wanted. You could have; He could have accomplished what He did on the cross, and you could have established believers into a different kind of format. But you chose community in the church to be. The necessary factor for us to grow and to be sharpened and to be held accountable and to stay um, unified together, and you chose the church to be a part of your mission to take the gospel out and your word says that people will not hear if if someone is not sent to proclaim the to proclaim that good news that message of great news for people and so you could have somehow revealed that to all people, but you chose to let us be a part of that. And, and I'm grateful for that, God. And so I just pray that you would, today, help us to understand our need for unity in the body of Christ. Not just um, this body of Christ, but unifying with, with your church all over the place so that we are together together working to reach those who are lost and god i pray that you would move with power through your holy spirit that you would prepare hearts in the area to receive your receive the gospel that you would bring them to a point where they're broken and and understand their need for christ and god may you above all be exalted for your greatness in my life, in the lives of these people here, in the life of this church, and may it bear witness to you and all of uh, Central Illinois that you are doing a mighty thing in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.